You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Well, so we're in Acts uh, chapter 22, if you want to um, join with me there. Uh, my little goofy pastor sermon uh, today was that uh, Kyra uh, and me um, have become sauna goers. We're that old now. And uh, Kyra came in yesterday uh, going to the gym. She was like, I've just been with the kids. I need to go to the gym. So she went to the gym, went to the sauna. And she came, and her face couldn't, she was so, her face was so red. It was like she had gone to Florida and uh, gotten kind of sunburned. She had like the cup with the, with the straw and all the water and all the books. She was like, whew, that was awesome. I was in the sauna for an hour. And I was like, an hour? I don't know if you guys have been to the sauna. Uh, I was like, that's too long. There's, you're supposed to be in there for 15 minutes. There's a clock and a set of coals, and the clock is like the second most important part of the sauna. Um, but she's a superwoman, so she's doing, she's doing really good. Are you there at, uh, at, uh, at uh, Acts chapter 22? I want to start today um, just by sharing a little bit of my testimony. If you've never been here before, um, uh, you know, I did not come in a, a, a believing home. I came up in an unbelieving um, background. We were Catholic, Christian, and Easter type of people. Um, I used to wear my bat, Batman costume to the, uh, to the Christmas pageant and wear the little thing that said sheep. But outside of that, that was about my engagement with church, you know, back in the day. And uh, I used to get in arguments with the priest back then, Father Doyle, about why, you know, God was something that people made up and, you know, we all needed to have something to believe in after we died. Otherwise, we'd be really terrified of the unknown. And that's really where, you know, anthropologically or whatever, uh, what I said back in my stubborn fourth grade self, why, you know, we, we shouldn't believe in God. And, um, and so um, as, as time went on, uh, I remember getting invited to a sleepover uh, of a Christian family. And... Uh, I remember not thinking that they really walked or talked or cared about faith other than on Sunday, but on Sunday, if you slept over on Saturday, you had to go to the sleepover. So I went to, this, to, the, to the church, big old church. It wasn't Catholic at all. Big old plants, guy had big hair, big music, big flags everywhere. It was a big church service. It was three hours. And, uh, and so the end of the thing, man, he was talking for so long. It was not an hour-long service, and so it was two hours. So anyways, he says amen, and they're like, you want to go down there? And I'm like, me? And they're like, yeah, you want to go down there? So I went on down there with the rest of the people, had no idea what I was doing, and I got up to the front of the line, and big hair guy stalks right at me and had that pastor breath on me, uh, and he had his hand, and he was just like pushing on my forehead, but I was not going back, man. I was not going back at all, and so that was, you know, some of my, some of my recollection, my experience with, you know, I guess the Protestant faith, and so ended up meeting uh, Kyra um, in, uh, in eighth grade and moved from New York to Indiana, um, grew up down the street like Winnie Cooper and Kevin Arnold, that's my, like, next-door neighbor there, and um, went to youth group with her. And, uh, and the youth group was that uh, smelled like coffee, had spiky hair. There's a lot of cologne going on, really loud music. And I was like, okay, you know, uh, to each his own. And, uh, but um, it, was, it was Kyra's family lived different. And uh, Kyra was different than a lot of the teenagers that I was hanging out with. And, uh, and Isaac, the youth pastor, he lived different. He, uh, he held the door for his wife, Rhonda, and let her in. And that, what is it, actions speak louder than the words? Like, it just, it was loud to me. I was like, here is a, just a young person that seemed like, he had purpose and peace, and, and, and um, he had something I didn't have. And I said, I, you know, I don't know who this guy is following, what he's about, but I, I want to do what he's doing. And so I remember I was, um, 1 Corinthians 13, I was out in front of a, uh, the porch at Kyra's house on a sunny day, and um, it was a teen Bible with a skateboarder on the front. It said, you shouldn't gossip. And then it had 1 Corinthians 13 and explained, you know, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, and so forth. And I mean, I don't know what to explain it to you other than at 16 years old, like I... I Something in my spirit, something deep inside of me was just like, I want to follow this. I, I remember speaking to the Lord even right then without a band and without a youth pastor, without a youth group. I was just like, I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. 
And knowing now, like, how many kids say, I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life and don't actually end up following for the rest of life, like, I can only explain to you the power of God to take a Chinese person from Hong Kong to New York to Indiana to Greenville, South Carolina to be a preacher instead of fighting with priests, I don't know, other than God, you know, has his plans. And so, um, and so I just wanted to, to open up um, and, and share my testimony today. It's important to continue to share testimonies with each other, with our kids, with people that don't listen to us, um, because, because stories are not just, our testimonies are not just being shared so that other people will hear them. They're, they're being shared because they need to be told. Stories need to be, need to be shared. And uh, so I don't know if you've ever been um, hanging out with your grandma and she asks you, like, have you ever heard this story before? And you've heard the story, but you're like, I know I probably shouldn't tell you to stop talking because you're my grandma and I should let you tell you the story, you know? Like, they tell the same stories over and over again. My mom talks about this Volkswagen rabbit that they used to have that wouldn't stop with the parking brake. So they had to put the cement cinder block under it. And she just laughs as this is the first time she's ever told this story before. She talked about my Chinese dad, Cam Chao Wong, like bringing down chili down the steps and spilling it before Kevin ever did it on the office back when they used to work for this like rich guy at Indiana University, Bloomington. Uh, my dad cannot even, to this day, cannot get the story out about Uncle Cam Singh, his older brother, taking us all out uh, to the YMCA forest in China and Hong Kong. Uh, to show the, the tree that they dedicated to him. They go all the way out there, and this tree was like two inches tall. We're like in the middle of this redwoods, and like Uncle Cam says, look at my honor, look at my glory. My dad literally cannot tell that story like without giggling like a schoolgirl. Like he's not an easy guy to make laugh. And so he just, he tells the stories. And once they start telling the story, you don't stop them because they got to tell the story. Stories are not just told to be heard. They're told to be told. Stories are not just explained to us uh, what happened. They're telling us who we are. And they need to be told continually, you know, to ourselves and, and, and to kids and so forth. And so really the, 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 the phrase I want to work with today, because the, the theme of the passage in Acts 22 before us is about testimony. It's so, so important that we tell our stories. And this is why, because if we don't tell our stories, um, my belief and conviction, you know, as a 39-year-old guy is like, if we don't tell the story, we don't know the story. We'll be forgetful of the story. We'll, we won't remember the story. We'll remember who we are and where we're coming from. If we don't tell the story... We won't know the story, and therefore, if we don't know the story, like we won't be able to live the story. And so Paul, remember, we left off in Acts 21, he's in tears on this beach, and he's saying goodbye to all these people that are telling him he doesn't need to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit of God's telling him that he doesn't need to go, like the people are telling him he doesn't need to go, but he has this stubborn conviction within him, all the way back from 18, Acts 19 and onward, that he, he's called to go back to Jerusalem. And remember, that's not the itinerary. Acts chapter 1-8 frames the whole book out. It's supposed to be Jerusalem first, Judea second, ends of the year third, but not back to Jerusalem. Something in, in him causes this detour to drive back to Jerusalem. And we're probably reading this, if you read the scriptures and read the Old Testament, it's because this is the reality. Like, once God loves, he doesn't, he doesn't release his love. Like, the reason why it should matter to us how much, you realize how much he talks about the Jews and how much in nine through, Romans 9 through 11, he talks about how the Jewish story is still in his heart because when God's love is loved, it's never lost. And the pursuit, right? If you were to date somebody, you want to know how they treated their ex when they broke up with them, right? And, and, and when, you, when you come into God and, 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 to, and to hear about his persistence against the stubborn hardness of the Jews, it should testify to us because that's just not their story. It's our story. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And that's the love that comes into Paul as he goes back from Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, the ends of the earth, and back again. to It's not a detour. It's, it's the heart of God to go back. And so he goes up and he gives this speech, and it's different, right? There's been these three big speeches throughout the book of Acts uh, appealing to the Jewish nation that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that Jesus is not a lawbreaker, he's a law fulfiller. He is the one that the law expected the whole time. And so remember Peter, he stands up and he gives this big sermon, and 3,000 people get saved. Do you remember what the sermon was about? The sermon was about prophecy. It was talking about all the things that God said, did, and are, and will happen. 
It was all about prophecy. And if you ever want to talk to an unbelieving person or you want to speak to yourself in your moment of unbelief, go look at the prophecies. There's 2,500 prophecies in the Bible and 2,000 of them have already come true. And if you look at the zeros attached to the probabilities of prophecies, they're not only implausible, they're impossible. Jesus' prophecies, the seven, eight prophecies that said he'd be born of a virgin and die and be crucified and be in the place that he was. You know what that chance, the probability is? One times 10 to the 17th. 10, 17 zeros next to a one, over, you know, one in proportion to that is the ratio with which Jesus can even exist in the form that he did if those prophecies came true. And they're historically proven that they happened. So if you want to talk about the validity of, the, of Easter, talk about prophecy. That's what Peter did. But beyond that, Stephen stood up, right? And he makes this appeal in chapter seven um, of, of the book and he talks to them about history. Like it's not just about prophecy, it's also about what the Jews did in response to that prophecy. They never listened. And if you want to talk to your unbelieving friends, right, or to yourself in your moment of unbelief, talk about the history of humanity. Find me one page in the history books of, 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 of all humanity where there's even one year without war. 12 months, you can't even find in the history of humanity, right, 12 months of, of warlessness in the history of humanity. As a matter of fact, in the last 100 years, there's been more bloodshed in the last 100 years at the height of technology and, and enlightenment and empathy and psychology and all these things. In the last 100 years, there's more bloodshed in the last 100 years than all the years before it, as if we're getting any better as a humanity. So, so Paul comes up, and in this last, little de- this last little tour to come back to Jerusalem, it's always Jew, before, Jew first and then Gentile. He comes up, and he, and he doesn't talk about prophecy in this chapter. He also doesn't talk about history. You know what he does? He talks about testimony. He talks about story. He says, if there's anybody, anybody who gets you, who, anybody who's like you, it's me. I am the murderer that became a missionary. If you can't believe me, there's no one else that you can believe. I'm the person who came to kill Christians, and now I make Christians. That demands a verdict. That demands some consideration. This is the testimony that I'm putting before you. And he tells that testimony. He tells that testimony, and ultimately, nobody responds to it, but, but still doesn't, I don't think, change the will of God that he was supposed to be at that place in that time to tell that story because stories are not just told to be heard. They're told to be told. They need to be told. If, if they're not listening, at least, at least Paul knows he can stand on his own ground and his own two feet and say he told the story, he stood and delivered. And even if he is brokenhearted, that God hears him telling that story. And if no one listens, testimonies still need to be, need to be told. So we're in the middle of this riot. He gets mosh pitted up to this little like bunker area where he gets to stand in defense because you can't flog a guy unless he gets an opportunity to stand in defense. And so he addresses this group of people um, who all grow silent in front of him. Verse 22, it says this, or verse one in chapter 22 says this, brothers and fathers, he says, listen to my defense. Verse two says, when they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Like Paul is an educated man. He's trilingual, speaks all the different languages. And he's known, he's, he's got a verification tag next to his little you know, Instagram handle. And he's known, his reputation precedes him. And so he stands up, they all listen to him. And Paul says this, he says, you know what? I want you to know something about me. I'm a Jew just like you. I'm not just a normal Jew, I'm a super Jew, man. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was at all the classes. I never missed Sunday school. We were at home in the co-op making butter by ourselves. Like we were Jew in the bubble, man. Like we were, we were raised Jewish. But at the same time, I wasn't just born and raised Jewish. I was also raised in Rome. Like, I've seen the Colosseum, and I've seen the culture, and I've seen the scandals and the idols and, and the Caesars. Like, I've seen the, I've seen the capital of uh, the Jewish world, and I've seen the height of the Gentile world, and I've seen it all, and I've been taught by the greatest. Look what he says. I've been, I've been studied under Gamaliel, the John Piper of the day, the John, John MacArthur of the day. Like, I've studied under the top scholars, and I was thoroughly trained in the laws and the ancestors. I've seen it all, and I learned it all, and this was my conclusion. I was just as zealous uh, for God as any of you were today. Verse 4 says, I hated it, God. I hated Jesus. 
I hated Christians. It says, verse 4, I murderously, slanderously persecuted them. Kids, children, no, no, no mercy. The followers of this way, I hate the way they looked. I hated the way they smelled. I hated the way they talked. The followers of this way, I led them to their death. I arrested them, both men and women, and throw them into prison in verse 5. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters. I became like a hitman to go out and drag these Christians back to the fate that they deserved. From them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. He says, I've seen it all. I've been there. I've done that. I've learned it all. And I'm telling you, I'm just like you. I made a flesh and blood just like you. And I was there when Jesus said that he was going to tear down our temple. And I was there when he said that he was greater than all the prophets, even Moses. And I was there when he said that the Sabbath was here because of him. And I was there when he said that he was the law and fulfilled the law. I was there when he said he was God. And I'm telling you, the same exact emotion that came up out of you, it came up in me. It came up in me because I was just like you. Um, I was, um, uh, we, Kyra was able to go to a, a ladies' conference uh, this last couple weeks ago, if you guys remember, it was called The Well, and it was an awesome opportunity for her to just like spend time away from ministry and from kids and from family and to hang out with like pastor's wives and stuff. And so one of the exercises they did at the beginning to kind of get to know everybody was like, what really like, what really, you know, uh, what really inspires you? What really stirs you up? What are you passionate about? And one of the things that Kyra wrote down in her little paper was transformation stories, like stories that start off in a certain way until they meet Jesus. And there's something about those types of stories. I mean, sermons get old and worship songs get old, but those stories, man, they never get older. There was this lady that, that tracked, her, tracked her down. It was a pastor's wife, and she said, I got to tell you the story because you're the transformation person. We all saw that on your piece of paper. Let me tell you about my husband. My husband uh, has a story. It's called Pimp to Pastor. And uh, basically, it starts off like this. He's a real big dude, right? And so they're like, you should go be a bouncer at this strip club. You're big. Go stand in front. You got tattoos. Go be intimidating. So he did it, right? You make a good amount of money doing stuff nobody else can or wants to do. That's the idea. Well, pretty soon, he realizes that at the strip club, there's also a lot of drugs that are moving around, so you might as well make more money by being the drug dealer, right? So now he's the, he's the guy that was the bouncer turned into the drug dealer, and he's running deals and making money. Maybe he's got guys working for him too. And then all of a sudden, they're like, well, there's even more money in the sex than the drugs. You might as well become a pimp. And so he goes from bouncer to drug dealer to pimp, and he's got this whole racket, a whole business, and he's owning the club and sitting on top of all the money until one little girl got him in trouble and threatened his whole career and all that stuff and took him to the police, and he got taken into prison, which he would say, you know, was the best day of his life, even though maybe at that time he thought it was the worst day of his life. Gets saved in the prison. I wish I had more time to explain or more details to color the picture, and you could see the rest from the title, Becomes a Pastor. Started as a pimp, becomes a pastor. How do we know that Jesus is alive? Because pimps become pastors. Murderers become missionaries. And I don't know if you're like me when I sit and hear stories like Paul and stories like the pimp pastor, you know, I sort of sometimes think maybe my story's not cool enough to have power in it. Like you really start to put a box around God and categorize it like if I'm not in prison, if I'm not strung out on drugs, if I'm not a pimp that becomes pastor, then what does my story matter? I was raised in the pew and my dad was a pastor and all I ever did was went to Sunday school and one time I skipped school and I felt bad about it and then I got baptized. You know, like that's not very dramatic, you know. But if you pay attention to the story, right, the power of the story is not in the drama of the story. The power is in the connection. The power is, is Paul being able to tear down that barrier that makes him seem like he's some set-apart superhero, and he can tear all that down just with his words by saying, listen, before all this, I was just like you. I thought just like you. I felt just like you. And so, so it is like, as we're thinking about talking about in city group, right, being in front of people, sharing in front of our kids, like the power of the testimony is not in the dramatic interpretation of it. 
or trying to make up a new story that doesn't really exist. It's telling the story as real as you can tell it. Because the, because the, the, the power of the testimony is not in the drama. It's in the, in the cross. It's being elevated in that story. And so I would just say this, like, you know, as we t- tell our stories, what I've noticed and what you've probably noticed too is like, if you stand up and this is the story, at one point I was poor and then I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and now I collect passive income, right? Like that doesn't connect with people because that's not really the story. If the story is I, I grew up and like, you know, um, I didn't have it figured out and all these people are losers and then I found that one guru and the guru showed me how to live the life and everything works out now, so I'm not like those losers, now I'm a winner. I'm like those losers, like it doesn't connect because it's not really the story. But ultimately, I, I remember being like, for example, I, um, at, 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 a, at a youth retreat one time um, this last spring for, for Southside Christian, and I remember, you know, you still get nervous, like, talking in front of teenagers are harder to talk in front of than 30-year-olds, man, they're ruthless. And so uh, I just remember the Lord said, you know, just relax, just like, just tell your story, you know, and I said this, and I remember I sat down, there's a group of people, I tried to just, like, de-escalate the situation for my sake, and, uh, and not be too churchy, and I just said it like this, I was like, you know, sometimes growing up in a mixed family, I said, sometimes it felt like I was not Chinese enough to be Chinese and not white enough to be white. And there wasn't any Asian people in this crowd, but everybody can connect to that story because everybody knows what it's like to not fit in and to want to find home and to want to know Jesus and need an identity. Like, if anything, they're more responsive to that than a group of 30-year-olds because they're in that moment when that's the stakes of the game, right? And so actually, here's the big trick of it all is like, I shared that story, and I think it was meaningful to some as they talked to me afterwards that they got to hear it, but I needed to tell the story because I just needed to tell it because I needed to find that's actually my story. My story is not just about being a pastor in the South. My story is about being found by Jesus, and oftentimes that's the hint, I think, of telling our stories is like when we connect, that's actually the place that we find the story. The story is not about success. The story is about pride. This is the story. This is what you and me are finding out, right? We are our own worst enemy. You know the reason why we continue to run into the same ruts and the same problems? Because we're the ones that, doing it to, that are doing it to ourselves. Because we are running into pride stories. We're running into shame stories. Um, uh, the, the story, the human story, the one that, that connects with teenagers and young adults and 50-year-olds, it's the fear story. It's the fact that God has put you and me in situations, in boats that have, that have waves that are too big for us to handle. And we're in the middle of that, and you're in the middle of that. I don't know where that is, but that's the place that we're at, in this place where God has put us in a situation where he has to be bigger than the situation because it's bigger than us. These are the human stories that connect. So he connects with them, and he's like, this is the deal. I'm just like you. I'm no more, I'm no more or less human than you are. He says, but here's what's different about me. This is the conviction from connection to conviction. The conviction is Jesus. So he says in verse 6, about noon, as I came near to Damascus, suddenly, he says, a bright light from heaven flashed around me. Verse 7 says, I fell to the ground and, he, and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What, what Paul is trying to explain to them is that the gospel that he believes is not talk, it's power. That the flashing around him from heaven, the physical flashing around him from heaven, is more manifested, but no less real than the flashes that happened when I opened up 1 Corinthians 13 in 1999. Like, what what is being explained about the gospel in our midst is that nobody sees Jesus without the Holy Spirit opening eyes. And whether or not I heard the ground shaking or the trees moving, like, like in 1 Corinthians 13 on Swanson Avenue in 1999, when I opened that Bible, that Bible was still written the same way. It wasn't Zondervan that wrote it the right way. It wasn't the cheesy teen cover that was on the front of it. It was the spirit of Jesus that occupied my mind and heart that opened my eyes the moment I opened that book in a way that they were closed all the years before it. And without the power of Jesus, without the power of the gospel, I don't see what I saw. And so it's saying that Christian testimony is not a matter of reason and logic and argument and persuasion and coolness. It's a matter of power. And he's saying that the light from heaven shines because of power. And so 
Verse 8 says, well, who are you, Lord? All of a sudden, he can see what he couldn't have seen, seen two seconds ago, and this is what Jesus says. He says, I'm Jesus. He calls him Saul, and he says, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting, he, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. In other words, he's saying it wasn't just power, like some type of mystical you know, thing that I went up to the top of Everest and saw something. It was personal. He called my name. I don't know where your story was, if you were in front of an altar with a lot of people or if you were with the Bible on your lap, like all by yourself in a quiet time. Like Jesus didn't just confront you with power. He, he pursued you with his personal presence. And he was calling my name. Like the reason why I knew who he was and to say yes to him and to follow him and however it is that you decided to follow him when you decided to follow him, it was because he talked to you personally. He's, he was calling me, my name, Oliver, to call him, to follow him. Name, you know, one by one. And then verse 10 says this, what shall I do, Lord? And that's when, that's when Paul's really saved. I mean, really, it's not because of what he wrote in Ephesians or how he sacrificed himself in Rome. It's not about going to prison. Verse 10 is the evidence of Paul's salvation. What shall I do, Lord? No one says that apart from the Holy Spirit. So he says, what shall I do? And the Spirit says, get up, Lord. Or get up, the Lord says, and go to Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. What, what the scripture wants us to know about this last passage is not just power and, and, and personal. It's also the providence of God. Like, here's the reality. Like, a year before I get into Swanson Avenue and move in with my mom, I'm in New York, New York, Albany, New York, and there's no way I'm going to move to Indiana. The only people I know from Indiana just drive pickup trucks and, you know, spit tobacco. Like, I'm not going to Indiana. I live in New York. And I realize it's not just a story about how I got to Swanson Avenue. You go all the way back. It's how did I get from Hong Kong? A mixed family of seven Chinese brothers marrying into a family of seven white sisters moving into Indiana and then to New York and then back to Indiana again and then to Greenville, South Carolina. Well, I don't even like football, right? And I'm a pastor in Greenville, South Carolina. How does that ever happen except for the providence of God? That his plan started way before the encounter ever took place. And so this is his conviction. He's like, this is, this is the conviction. It's about Jesus. So I don't know if you've been following the, the, you know, the Asbury Revival. So Asbury in Kentucky is a, is a seminary that um, actually I think... Um, I think Isaac, my youth pastor, went to Asbury um, College. So anyways, it's like been crowds and throngs of people that have been gathered to this place from all over the nation to come and pray and to seek the heart of God and, and to really participate in, in revival. And, um, and these are the three things, if you've watched it, you know, that seem to be eminent, that seem to be really sticking out to me, you know, and, and, and this is what I see in, in this thing is first and foremost, um, like it's, it's all Gen Z. Like I watched the little devotion that they did before the revival took place and all the singing started, like it was the most boring, vanilla, bland, you know, un, unorganized sermon ever. The guy was just muttering about Romans 12 and we should just love each other and then called amen. And then I can't conceive of how it got from that to like thousands and thousands of people descending on this thing other than the fact that the Spirit of God will use anything he wants. So it's a, it's a, it's a for Gen Z, by Gen Z thing in a moment when the statistics are all pointing in this doom and gloom future for, for a generation. God's like, well, until I get a hold of it, the dark is dark before the light can pierce into it, and, and I've created a canvas in this moment so that I can get people's attention. This is not about programs. It's about the presence of God, and it's been about Jesus. And secondly, as all these leaders come in, and they're like, you need help, and these speakers, you know, Louis Giglio or Carrie Job and all stuff, they're not, they're not allowing that to happen because it's not going to continue the way it didn't start. Like, it started nameless and faceless, and it's continued, like, without a name, without a face, because it's, it needs to be protected around the presence of Jesus. And lastly, you know, it's not really denominational. Like, it's not trying to, like, steward this little movement and create these five, 
you know, value post that they're doing. They're just saying it's been about Jesus. It's going to be about Jesus. And I think that's at the heart of it. If, if we've ever been a part of revival or been in personal revival, it's not really about the gifts and the music and the, and the people and the leaders. It's about the spirit of Jesus and being about Jesus. So if you really listen, right, to your story and other people's story, like, you will hear counter-narratives to the one that Paul just preached. I was part of lame church. It was so lame. It was boring and I fell asleep. So then I found a cool church and the music was loud and it was relevant. And so now I follow Jesus. That's not the same story as Paul has just talked about. I was part of a lonely situation and I didn't have any friends and I found the church and then people were really nice to me. And now I'm a part of a church. That's not the testimony that Paul just, just, just said. You know, I, I, I was part of a messy environment and my life was chaotic and so the Bible created this strong black and white structure that allowed me to tell the difference between right and wrong because that's the problem in the world is people don't know the difference between right and wrong. Like none of these narratives, if, if we listen to some of these narratives, are the one that Paul just spoke about because the one that Paul just spoke about is it's all been about the presence of Jesus. It's been about the power of, of Jesus. And some of this deconstruction stuff, like as we live and walk out our days, you know, it's like we are inheriting a moment, I, I think, of of. of, of of in a seeker-sensitive culture of trying to draw people with a whole bunch of other stuff and then sprinkling Jesus on top and then being surprised while people leave when that stuff fails. And in the center of all this, you know, the, the revival, I think, of our hearts and of Asbury and any other place is like, it works and it's worth it only when it's centered around, around Jesus, when it's all about Jesus. And so I think Paul is telling us that, that this is the true story, this is the real story, is, 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 is how my life is, is, is changing around the presence of Jesus. And so I'm encouraged by the next couple of verses that the distance between Paul's like conviction moment to meet Jesus and encounter him and his calling is like 10 years. Like I'm thankful that Paul just doesn't have it figured out on day one, that he actually has to go through 10 years of a process to find what his purpose is and his calling. And the distance between that conviction and calling is just a bunch of little baby steps. So this is how the story goes in verse 12. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. And verse 13 says, he stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. One of the things that sticks out about the book of Luke is the ability for eyes to be closed and eyes to be open. And one of the themes that you'll find in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts is that eyes are open when bread is broken. Like when the church comes together, all of a sudden I get to see the gospel because if I can see him forgiving and accepting you despite your sin, maybe I have a chance of believing it for me too. Anybody here ever feel like it's easier to believe for somebody else than for yourself? So the process of getting around believers is not separate or tangential or supplemental to the encounter with Jesus. Like, his eyes aren't open until he gets to Ananias. And so there's, there's something to be said here in finding our calling. Like, it wasn't just straight from the road to Damascus into Paul's baptismal. It, the path that it was called to Damascus goes through the church, goes through community. And so I've experienced, and you've probably experienced before, there's something about when we're with people that we actually find purpose. When, we're, when, we, when we commit and are devoted to the one anotherings of the Bible, when we're isolated, and then when we're committed to the one anotherings of the Bible, it's all of a sudden we see our gifts shine forward. We see our heart and our compassion and our distinctive shine forward. Our, our unique gifts and characteristics, our purpose is oftentimes found with people. I think that's encouraging to see Paul, that he's not just this solo renegade dude that it's a superhero going to put the kingdom on his back, that he's got to get to church, break bread, have his eyes open, and mingle and mix with the rest of the body of Christ to find out who he is, not just who Jesus is. So Ananias says it this way. He says, The God of our ancestors has chosen you, just like he chose Abraham, to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. Verse 15, You will be his witness to all the people that you've seen and heard. 
And now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. So Damascus to the baptism, and then ultimately to Jerusalem and to Rome and the ends of the earth. Verse 17 says, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell in a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. I mean, this is the great, the, the great plot twist, right? That the Jew and the Gentile nation were created at Abraham. And when Ishmael and Isaac went their separate ways, like a great case study is basically being rolled out. And it has a plot twist you never would have guessed. This is the case study. The case study is that the people that had the, the covenant, that had the law, that had the spirit, that had the prophets, that had everything, had everything and missed Jesus and had nothing. That's the great case study. You would have assumed that the people that he chose to be birthed out of Abraham that had the paternity test that matched the DNA of Abraham would be the first ones on the front row to see Jesus, but they couldn't see it because it's very possible for you and I, being not Jewish, to have everything and not have Jesus and miss everything and have nothing. And vice versa, Ishmael goes on and he becomes a Gentile nation and he eats the wrong way and talks the wrong way and sleeps the wrong way and marries the wrong way and somehow by the profound nature of grace has nothing, finds Jesus and gets everything. And that's the plot twist of the Jews and the Gentile things that he causes the Jews to reject so the Gentiles would accept so that all of history would look in and say, if you have Jesus and nothing, you have everything. And if you have Jesus plus anything, you have nothing. And that is going to be the inevitable covenant, the inevitable testament that's, that goes on in the New and the Old Covenant that we see through the Jewish story. And so Paul is like on his knees in this temple because he, he believes in the providence of God and he believes in the love of the Lord towards the Jewish nation and he he burdens his heart the way the Lord has burdened towards the Jews. And he makes this prayer in verse 19 in the temple. Lord, he replied, he says, these people know that I went from synagogue to synagogue to imprison and beat those who believe in you. Like I was a, I was a murderer and they know my zeal and they know my passion. I was just like them. He says, in verse 20, he says, and when the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing them. In other words, he's like, if they're gonna listen to anybody, they gotta listen to me. I'm the teacher, I'm the Pharisee. If they're gonna listen to anybody, they're going to believe the murder? You're telling me that somebody that wanted to murder Christians became a Christian maker? And last but not least, like he says, even in Romans, like I can't even think about, conceive of a statement like this. He says in the book of Romans, I would rather that I be cursed. In other words, Paul is going down in history saying, I would rather go to hell if it meant that those Jews could go to heaven. Like if there's anybody that could reach them, it's me because I have the compassion to reach them. I'm the one with the pedigree. I'm the one with the testimony. I'm the one with the experience. I'm the one with the compassion. And he goes into Jerusalem and he preaches to this crowd and, and look how many people respond to him. Verse 21, then the Lord says to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. But in going back to the Jews, verse 22, this is what happens when he goes to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. The crowd listens to Paul and this is how many people respond to him, respond to the gospel that day. They listen to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. Like, you know when you're in a fight, the thing that makes you the most mad is the thing that's probably a little bit right. Like, my, my, my sense of all this is that they're sitting there listening to this crowd, and they know that they're angry at Paul about what he's saying, but the Spirit is on all flesh for the conviction of sin, and they kind of know that he's right. That they're sitting there, and they're actually, they were created a clay pot, Romans says, to be the people that for, I mean, if there's anybody out here that thinks that they could read and memorize the Bible to save themselves, you got to go look at Jews, Right? If there's any doubt in our mind that there's a group of people that could work themselves into heaven, it woulda, shoulda, coulda, oughta been them. And they will stand as a testimony throughout time as the people group that had everything and lost it all. And that's the sadness of it, right? The older brother that hears the song off in the distance, he knows that the joy that he needs and wants and the peace that he doesn't have is not in him. 
He has everything and nothing without Jesus. And he knows he's on the wrong side of that math problem. But sometimes stubbornness can make your heart so hard you'll reject the thing you know is right. And these Gentiles are sitting there right in front of the promise and they won't receive it. But here's the big point, just to put ourselves in the, in, in, in the voice, in, into the shoes of Paul. Is he getting sent there to give that testimony only if they listen to them? Or is he giving that testimony because rocks will cry out if he doesn't say it? He's been sent down there with the heart of God because love is not only giving itself when it's received, it's giving itself when it's rejected. And he is not just listening to the life of Jesus, he is reliving the life of Jesus. This is what happened to Jesus and this is what is happening to Paul right in his midst. And whether or not they receive him, reject him, or throw stones at him, or ultimately put him in prison and send him off to the Roman guard, he will preach his story because stories are not just preached to be heard, they're preached to be told. And if he doesn't preach it, he doesn't, he doesn't know the story that he's living. He's not able to stand in conviction of, of who he was way back in that road in Damascus and the convictions that he's had. And so that's kind of the question that I have for us as we would maybe process this for, for our life. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of uh, Donald Miller storyline, right? So Donald Miller says everything's a story. And uh, every movie you see, hate to burst your bubble, every television show, Lost, every Diet Coke commercial, you know, has a story is, is what he says. And stories are made up of characters, um, characters that have problems. You know, Luke Skywalker, you know, he realizes that the, uh, the Empire is in bad shape and that uh, Darth Vader is going to prevail. And so he's pretty lost until he meets the little green guy. Remember him? Yoda, grown up old Yoda, not baby Yoda. And Yoda helps bring out what was in Luke all along. Like Luke always had the force, but he needed the Yoda to release it or to kind of like find it in him or whatever. So Yoda doesn't just send him off to Darth Vader. He sends him into like the training time, like a time of a plan of like working out. And, and it's not just overnight that Luke becomes Luke Skywalker. Like he has to go through this process of discovering who he already is. And so he gets raised up into this great call and he has this, you know, stories have to have this compelling narrative of like, good or evil, right or wrong, and so Luke has to decide, like in that you are here circle with no box in it, that's really where Star Wars 1, 2, and 3 takes place, really, is the fate of the universe on his, on his hands. And so, so this is Paul's story, right? If you read it, it's, it's messy. And uh, uh, the next slide. And it's not, uh, you know, exactly super linear, but Paul is a super Jew. And if there's anybody that can reach the Jews and loves the Jews and has the, the wit and the, and the, and the uh, esteem to reach the Jews, it's him. But the problem is that he's a persecutor, and then, he, and then he hates the very, the very people um, and the very Messiah that's come to save him. And so he encounters Jesus. And that's the deal. Like, it's not just the problem, it's his salvation. Jesus encounters him, and he goes through 10 years of these baby steps, these small steps of getting into community and asking hard questions and praying out loud when you don't feel like it and asking and researching difficult theological questions and, and owning your faith of taking steps that didn't just stop at Damascus and now everything's great. He had to walk that faith out over a period of time to finally realize his calling was not to the Jews but to the Gentiles. And so I say all that, the map all that out, to suggest to you, like, what's your story? If I were to ask you to tell me, like, your gospel story, like, do you know the story and do you tell the story? And is it just some trite story that somebody told you you should tell the story or is it some dramatic story that you said, well, all these other stories had to do with alcohol and, and sex and so therefore that has to be my story. Like, if that's not your story, that's not the story. The next question I would ask you there on, on your storyline, like what makes you different? What is unique about you that you think is a detriment and an opposition is actually maybe your empowerment. It's maybe the vehicle that God is using to not only meet you but use you. Do you know what that is? Have you come to terms with that? Do you know this origin place that you're coming from? And secondly, do you know that the, the problems that we continue to run in, right, they're not just little problems where I blew up on Tuesday but I'll make it better. Like these are prison problems. They're poison problems that come from sin that need salvation, not just a fix. 
So our guide is not a guru. Our guide is a savior, and he comes in power and presence. And if you've never met Jesus before, like if you're just like, I want a place where I can sing, and I want to be Christian famous, but not real famous, right? Like that can't be the story. The story has to be I was saved by Jesus, so I serve him with everything that I have. And every time something wrong goes bad with the church and they disappoint you and you, you know, want to move and leave, like, it's testing what you're actually following. Why are you here? Is it because you encounter Jesus and your life is never the same or is it because, oh, I got kids and I got to figure out how to raise them? Those are not the same stories. And so here's the good news. If you know what you haven't had, you know how to ask for it. You can ask Jesus, if you're real, show me. I can't do this religious thing anymore. Wearing the khakis and making my wife happy. Like, I need to encounter you. Because if I haven't encountered Jesus, then none of it makes sense and none of it's worth it. If I've encountered the face of Jesus, then everything is worth it. So that's, the, I think, what, what confronts us about Paul's story. And Paul's story says it's not just like you become Billy Graham, you know? Like there's baby steps. It's getting into these conversations and breaking bread with people that are different than us and, 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 and dealing with the racial issues that we have and the gender issues that we have and, and talking and speaking with people and taking these baby steps, asking the Spirit to go with you through the messiness and the channels of life to, 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 be, to be raised up into what we're called to do. But people with the testimonies have the, have the best callings they can reach, they can teach, and so forth. And so what, what's, what's your calling? These are some of the questions I think that this story makes me think about myself. And there's the last one, the you are here button there with me. Ultimately, this is not a success story. It's a, it's a faith story. Ultimately, Jesus is our success. And if we don't do one more thing, if all we say here is, here I am, Lord, then he counts as a success. The success of Jesus is given to us. And it's just whether or not we'll be faithful to, uh, to who we know him to be. And so the, um, yeah, the closed sermon in the sentence that I would say for uh, this passage in, in, in chapter 22 is just this, that if you would tell your gospel story, if you took 20 minutes aside and you sketched out like, maybe it's even different from the last time you had a chance to tell your story. Maybe there's even more insight and more wisdom as to what God was doing in the macro sense. But what's your gospel story? Because I think that what Paul is showing us is if you can tell your gospel story, you'll know it. And if you can know it, you live it, you'll embody it. And to, and to be able to share and talk about and live out your gospel story is one of, the, one of the greatest privileges, I think, that we have in the Spirit. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.